Hi, and welcome to episode 171 of the IOPN We Do Science podcast. I am Dr. Lauren Bannock, and today my conversation is with Dr. Dana Lees. She is a practitioner, a registered dietitian in Canada, but also a PhD in sport and exercise nutrition, where her expertise was in the very topic that we are going to be discussing today, which is the concept of gluten-free diets and FODMAPs and how they may or may not be influencing the things that are relevant to athletes from a nutritional perspective. The reason why I'm a bit sort of vague on that, as you will discover today, is there's many different ways, of course, in which food can influence the performance, the health, the the, the adaptations and ultimately game day or competition day performance. And we've discussed this over many episodes over over many years. And as I discuss today, you know, in sport and exercise nutrition, sports science, we tend to focus on the more sciencey stuff, the terms that we see in the published papers, in the textbooks, things like calories, carbohydrates, grams of this, and so on and so forth. But, you know, you'll also have heard me talk about the fact, and others, of course, athletes are also human beings, and we don't just eat calories, we don't just eat carbohydrates, we eat food. So when you combine both those ideas of athletes are human beings, and also we don't just eat sports science sounding things, we eat actual food, there are many different components to that which makes a human being a human being, which includes potentially health problems, irritable bowel, bloating, gut issues generally, and a whole variety of other things that can happen when you eat food proximal to training or performance before and after. Even in the last podcast, we talked about nutrient timing. There's all sorts of stuff goes there, but it's a very complex process, of course, that is digestion and the interaction that we have for foods, not to mention one's own personal needs and preferences. And of course, when we talk about preferences, one's preferences, yes, it might be philosophical, religious, economic, but sometimes it can be a belief, a perception that a certain food is good or bad for you. And this is why this topic is such an interesting one for us to get into today, because gluten-free diets are very popular for various reasons. People think for various reasons, whether it's science or what they've heard or myth or, or whatever, but one way or the other, they've heard that um, there might be a benefit to consuming a gluten-free diet as it relates to their, their health, their symptoms, performance outcomes, body composition, whatever. And more recently, you have probably heard about these things called FODMAPs, which are similar, of course, to, to gluten. Gluten is actually a feature of the FODMAP group of foods, as we will explore today. But one may actually be not so relevant for as a dietary strategy to dealing with gastrointestinal symptoms in athletes and or other factors like achieving body composition and so on. Whereas another might might be a bit more evidence-based, might be a bit more relevant. Maybe, maybe not. You're going to find out in today's podcast discussion. Now, before we get into that conversation or before I let you listen to that, please do come back to our website. It's constantly changing now. We're putting lots of effort into the IOPM website. We've got lots of cool things launching later this year as well. So I don't want to um, surprise you with those things yet, but just to let you know that a lot of cool things are about to launch. A lot of new things are coming 
to our offerings at the IOPN. So keep checking back www.theiopn.com where you'll find, of course, the section on this podcast. We're about to upgrade the podcast section of the website, but you can access all the episodes there. Of course, you get them on iTunes and Spotify and so on, but additional resources can be found via our website. And like I said, there's actually going to be enhanced features coming very soon. So depending on when you've heard this podcast, you absolutely should go back and check frequently because those changes will be released almost almost weekly if at this rate, this, this sort of daily changes are going on. Apart from the podcast, of course, we do our advanced diploma in performance nutrition. It is a substantial training and education program in sport and exercise nutrition. It is not a short course. It is not your degree or postgraduate degree. It is, uh, it is very much there to bridge the gap between science and practice. That is, of course, our obsession at the IOPN. It is a huge amount of training and education in the things that my colleagues and I and all the guest experts that we have on board from around the world feel that you need to learn to really thoroughly advance your knowledge and in particular your skills as a practitioner. That's where we come from. It is a practice-focused, practitioner-led program. There's nothing like it. Yes, there are programs that, that cover bits of what we do. And of course, we cover bits of what other people do. But this is the most comprehensive program of its type available. And it is 100% Online. So anyway, you can learn about that at www.theiopn.com. Our other main offering currently is Senpro, which is our practitioner software for uh, sport and exercise nutritionists, performance nutritionists, sports nutrition coaches, and the like to interact with your individual clients, group coaching online, for example, and in team settings. And there's a huge amount within that software platform that will help you excel as a practitioner, your practice, the way you manage your practice, the way you interact, communicate with your clients, and ultimately initiate things like habit and behavior change. Just go check it out at www.theiopn.com. And that's it. That's all I'm going to talk about now. But like I said, keep checking our website out for all our news and updates and our new jobs board, by the way. We're finding jobs all over the all over the planet and we're posting them there on our jobs section in performance nutrition. Whoever you are, if you're looking for a career in sport and exercise nutrition, it's worth checking that out. We keep updating that as well. So you can learn about that, as I said, on our website. So now I'd like you to enjoy this conversation about gluten-free diets, FODMAPs and so on as it relates to athletes with Dr. Dana Liss. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. I'm Laurel Bannock, and today my guest is Dr. Dana Liss. There you go. I made sure I pronounced your name right. How are you, Dana? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Awesome. Awesome. So uh, I can't wait to get into this conversation with you today for a variety of reasons. We're going to talk about a topic that you happen to be an expert on, of course, and you've published uh, some great articles and reviews on this. But it, it is it is a huge topic for a variety of reasons that I'm going to come into in a minute, which revolves around the concept of gluten-free, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, particularly in the context of, of athletes, various strategies, uh, food-based, dietary-based strategies that revolves around that, and 
is there a crossover and or is it actually a FODMAP issue? These are all things that we'll discuss in a minute as it relates to gastrointestinal symptoms with athletes. But before we we have this chat that just for selfish reasons, I can't wait to talk to you about. Would you like to just give us a quick overview, Dana, about yourself and where you're based and, and what sort of things you're up to? Yeah, no, I'd love to. And thank you so much for having me on. Um, this is a great podcast and it's, it's great to be able to contribute to it. I currently live in near Lake Tahoe, California, in a little uh, ski town called Truckee. So I definitely feel very fortunate to live live beside skiing and um, being able I've, to. I've be been there, Dana, and I'm You've I'm been not. To Truckee. I, I have, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> back to you. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so we live right on Donner Lake. You probably know the whole Donner Park Beautiful, story. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, yeah, so I, I am a registered dietitian um, in Canada, actually. I'm not registered in the States, but I work in the States, I guess, technically as a nutritionist. I am from Canada originally, have worked within the Canadian um, sports system at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific for a few years, and then found our way down to Australia, actually in uh, Tasmania, which contrary to popular belief is actually not in Africa, it's part of Australia. I did a, my PhD work there, and then we actually re- relocated to California to UC Davis. So my husband's a professor there, and I was in um, Keith Barr's lab for a while doing some postdoc work in the collagen space and the sort of nutrition for connective tissue synthesis and connective tissue health space. So still work a little bit with Dr. Barr and um, am now, yeah, as I mentioned in Truckee and I work between basically between Europe, the UK, San Francisco and Canada. So lots of different moving parts right now, but I work for science and sport out of the UK that probably most listeners are familiar with. I um, consult with the Golden State Warriors, so hopefully we're we're looking at another championship. We'll see. And then I work with a couple of World Tour cycling teams. I work with Israel Premier Tech and uh, EF Tibco SVB, so a men and world's women tour cycling team. Um, they're not been necessarily based in Europe, but that's where it all happens. That's great. I mean, I the listeners won't, you know, they've heard me say this all the time, but I'm particularly into this concept of bridging the gap between science and practice. We were just talking about that. That's what my doctoral research was all about. And that's because it matters and, and it all matters. The science matters. The, the art of practice matters. The art of communication, the ability to differentiate good from bad, relevant from irrelevant, affordable from not affordable and you know the needs and preferences and oh my days, it gets complicated. And that's what we have oh, to absolutely. deal with you know, as a practitioner. And I have this, uh, people who've seen me lecture before will know that I tend to start most of my lectures with these slides of a picture of a classroom and a picture of a, a laboratory and then a picture of a World War One trench. And I make a point of saying that that's where we practice, not in the lab, not in the classroom. All of those places are relevant and part of our journey, but it's that crazy environment that we find ourselves in day-to-day practice where all sorts of things happen, some of which you may or may not have planned for, and you certainly didn't see on the very dry pages of your textbook. Hence, I love these conversations, you know, and it's about bringing to life some of these these topics, which we're going to talk about today, of course, when we get into this idea of gluten-free and FODMAPs and so on, and how that can impact symptoms that athletes have who are of course human beings just like everybody else that's potentially going to consider these sorts of of strategies but before we go into that i just want to mention you you in your travels around the world which is which is brilliant keith bar you need to say hi to keith bar for me we (laughs) 
we've crossed paths a few times. He's um, soccer obsessed in many ways. Of course, I know he worked over here, but he and I also did some presenting together out in, in Qatar once. Where yeah, I, I remember actually when you guys were there together. Yeah. That's right. I remember. Yeah, he, he's awesome. And he's been a guest, of course, on this podcast talking about mm-hmm. Various things over the years. So anyway, it's always nice. It's a small world, Dana. That's the it point. It is. And, you know, he's an incredible, <laughs> incredible human being, incredible scientist. And I've definitely had a few, few good years working with him. A lot of us, when we talk about sport and exercise nutrition, it, particularly where the science comes from, it's very interesting to see the parts of the world Absolutely. that one could look at has strongholds of sport and exercise yeah. nutrition science yeah. and Canada is absolutely one of those. And of course, Australia and the UK, of course, is, is one of those places. And in certain areas of the States, like at UC Davis, for example, you've got some really top quality stuff there. So it must be interesting for you to have seen the science, the research, the way in which people approach that in those different countries just it just because it's interesting to me selfishly yeah absolutely no absolutely what what were your experiences in that must have been fascinating when i was working in canada in olympics so nutrition was still i would say newer newer to the sports science team or the interdisciplinary team where there you know there weren't a lot of full-time roles you would you know be plugged in with you know swimming for one day a week and another sport snowboard for you know half a day a month sort of thing and since we, you know, Canadian sports system, as well as some other organizations, B210, as I mentioned previously, have invested in, in nutrition within the Olympic sports system. We've just seen an exponential growth in just practitioner capacity, practitioners that have both sort of the research and science experience, and then also being able to, you know, apply that in the field. And also just that really important research that happens in the field with athletes. And, you know, Trent's been a huge mover and shaker with, with making that happen out of the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific in Victoria. And then, you know, Australia, when we were going, when we decided to move to Australia, it was super exciting for me because Australia has been, you know, like the evolution of performance nutrition. It has driven so much of what we do and our gold standard practices. Body composition, Isaac, for example, I didn't know anything about that before the Aussies started using it, validating and establishing this gold practice within, you know, teams and sports systems. Working through Europe too, I think you just learn so much about different cultures. Like Europe is so multicultural. You drive one hour and you're in a completely different world. And when I work with Israel, uh, Premier Tech, you know, we have, I don't, gosh, I don't even know, probably 30 different countries represented. And the amount of languages and cultural nuances that you have to navigate with, you know, simple things like a post-race meal is challenging, but it's also develops you as a practitioner. You you don't just go in there guns a blazing. I'm like, this is what we need to do. I have the best ideas. You really learn to navigate people. And, you know, you take a little bit from each, each experience and, you know, continue to grow and learn. Something that I suspect that you, you probably have observed the same as me. And you certainly, I would imagine as a practitioner would probably feel the same is that when we're talking about sports, nutrition, science, Sort of in my mind's eye, I've got all these terms start flooding in, and obviously FODMAP's another one, and we'll come to that in a minute. But you've got your macros, we've got relative energy deficiency syndrome, we've got calories, we've got protein, we've got carbohydrate, we've got all this stuff. And we love scientists love technical terms, and sports nutritionists have their own particular, you know, collection 
of terms that they absolutely love. And also, it's important, yes, that we're putting all this time and effort and this enthusiasm into developing the field that is sport and exercise nutrition with scientific standards, you know, around the world, as we've just discussed there, there are all sorts of people in their lab coats right now, really just helping to blast open and develop further all of this knowledge that we have. However, if one was being slightly critical, one would also want to differentiate the quality level of some of these studies Mm -hmm. and or a term that I quite like talking about in more recent podcasts, uh, particularly after I did my doctorate, was very much this concept of how much of this stuff is actually relevant, particularly in certain contexts. Now, for reasons that are completely understandable, it is almost impossible to pull together a cohort of more than just a few elite athletes, let alone thousands of them to have a a really high quality study from the perspective of some other scientists, epidemiologists, and so on, will look at this and go, oh my God, you've only got 11 people in that study. But you know, when I had Trent on this podcast a while ago, we joked about this a bit. And it's a problem though. We have this issue of studies are done left, right, and center. Some of them are done on, say, college athletes, which are, I guess, depending on your perspective, elite to a certain extent, but they're most definitely not elite as it pertains to, say, Olympic athletes. It may be a coincidence that, you know, you've got a college student who happens to be an Olympian, but that's going to be pretty rare, particularly on a global scale. So we've got this issue of this information that we have that comes out of quotes on quotes, and this is audio, not video, but I'm doing the double finger thing. (laughs) It's, I see it's scientifically validated. It's it's been through research. It's been through peer reviewed. Don't we're not even going to get into the issues with different journals and so on. I will refer listeners to a relatively recent podcast with Graham Close about from paper to podium, which is all about this business of the relevance of research and applying it to get the the results that you need with elite athletes and so on. But this is a problem, and this particularly relates to this topic that. I wanted to get into today about these topics, these terms that I've used. We need to understand that, yes, we eat macros and calories and so on, but what we actually do is eat food. And we don't just eat food because it's also a question of we, as in human beings, vary like our genetic makeup. They vary like our fingerprints, like our, you know, the microbiome is, I mean, we just have so many differences between us, needs, preferences, could be religious but it also could be an allergy. It could be an intolerance, could be a perceived intolerance to a certain food, which of course we're going to get into. There's just a lot to it. And you don't have to only eat something that was identified in that research study, i.e. whey protein was what was being studied. And that was shown to be more superior than another dairy form of protein or a plant-based protein to bring about you know, these proposed statistically significant benefits over the alternative to, you know, for whatever training adaptation or whatever, when actually in reality, eating a chicken breast or a a nut burger or whatever might actually have similar outcomes is something that is maybe not looked at from the bigger picture perspective, particularly as it relates to what's relevant in the real world. So anyway, before I run off into one of my rants, why did you want to get into this but you know what was it about you and your circumstances wherever you are on the planet at the time 
that decided to specifically get into this topic, which is not something that has commonly occurred in sports nutrition science. Yes, we see it in nutrition science. The conversation kind of evolved organically like it, you know, it does at a lot of conferences when you're sitting around after sort of the conference day is over. And actually, Trent and I um, used to work together at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific. Anyone who knows me well knows I do like to sip on whiskey periodically, sometimes not so periodically, Fireball in particular. We were sort of talking about, you know, like we was kind of heading into London. It was ACSM, whatever ACSM was around that time, the London Games. So 2012. And we were talking about gluten-free. And we have like, I have all these athletes going gluten-free and they're saying that, you know, they're they don't have as much bloating. And so we're going back and forth. I'm like, yeah, I'm working with this athlete and they did this and they said this. And we were, you know, kind of reflecting like as a practitioner, we don't really didn't really have any evidence or basis to inform an athlete whether or not removing gluten from their diet was going to be beneficial or harmful. There was just so much unknown. We knew about celiac disease at that point. We knew maybe a little bit about non-celiac gluten or wheat sensitivity, but we didn't really have any, any scientific basis. So then one thing rolled into another and we started, you know, developing kind of research questions, throwing ideas back and forth. And it evolved into what was originally going to be a master's turned into a series of PhD projects. And the first question we had was just to learn about what athlete practices were going on worldwide around gluten-free diets or removing gluten from the diet, because, you know, our little sample size was from, you know, the West side of Canada. We didn't really know if this was something that was happening in Australia, throughout Europe, in the UK. So we needed to first just learn more about athletes, about their rationale experiences. And I think that's also where a lot of really practical research questions and also research solutions or practical solutions come out of is what are athletes doing in the field? We're learning more and more when we have sort of one foot in research and one foot in practice, that gap is becoming closer and closer. And what athletes are doing in practice stimulate a lot of good research ideas. And then we're able to sort of learn about, you know, why that may or may not work and then refine the strategies. So that's sort of this crosstalk. So one thing led to another, and I found myself moving to Tasmania of all places to pursue this research. And so I was able to create my supervisory team. So still connected with Canada and sort of built this sequential series of projects that started with looking at gluten-free diets first. And when you start looking at gluten and how athletes experience or reported experiencing the removal of gluten from their diet and how symptoms may or may not change, then that sort of opens up a whole can of worms. Like anything, there's not really a straightforward line. So the first piece was, you know, just learning, was this something that was going on worldwide? And we launched a pretty large questionnaire. We had just under a thousand participants and participants from all over the world. So we were able to capture a really good picture of you know, why athletes were adhering to gluten-free diet, why this trend was all of a sudden having this huge surge, and also just the rationale and just sort of linking more to learning about the symptoms that athletes may or may not be experiencing when they remove gluten from their diets. This is a big topic. And also, it would be easy to get slightly distracted by what is essentially the more clinical stuff. We got to bear in mind that Clinically healthy people, yeah. in this case, athletes, will still have symptoms, gastrointestinal symptoms, and there can be reasons for that that can be functional and or specifically related to the type of exercise that they're doing and maybe the clash that that has with 
what they've eaten before or during, like I'm thinking ultra endurance events that, you know, for hours on end or cyclists, of course, as you would know much better than I, there's all sorts of stuff there. But like I said at the beginning, and I keep repeating is athletes are human beings and they do suffer from the same problems as well. And it is entirely possible that you could have an exercise induced gastrointestinal issue as well as a pre-existing sort of IBS or whatever. But however which way we look at it, a lot of people are aware of this topic and they have varying levels of of understanding or belief as to what all this means. And of course, this is a big problem that we find ourselves presented with in performance nutrition, particularly as it relates to certain nutritional strategies, dietary or ergogenic aids or sort of in between a supplement strategies and so on, where there's a certain belief that a certain product will bring about a certain benefit and that may or may not be based on evidence. There's a lot of sciencey stuff to <laughs> quote Louise Burke. But from your perspective as a as a dietitian, so you've had the clinical training, but also as a performance dietitian, performance nutritionist, for you, how on earth do you differentiate between those two? And I guess actually what we should do is have a few definitions here, Dana, because I think not everyone's going to know what these terms mean. And I've just used a few, but I think that's a good place for us to start. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start by just defining FODMAPs. I think now, several years after this research has been published, most people are familiar with the term FODMAPs. So it's an acronym that basically stands for all these fancy, fancy short chain carbohydrates. So FODMAPs, F stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. So what this basically means, kind of a big, long word. And when I was first learning about FODMAPs, I, was, I thought I would never be able to pronounce all those words. So it took some practice. But there's a family of short chain carbohydrates that are poorly absorbed in the small intestine. And that's common among everyone, whether or not you experience any symptoms whatsoever. These short chain carbohydrates are not, they're variably absorbed. And when these carbohydrates are not perfectly absorbed in the small intestine, they transit down to your lower intestine or your colon, where bacteria basically use these carbohydrates as food and they ferment them. And what happens with fermentation is you produce gas. So that's when the bloating symptoms come into play. So when those short chain carbohydrates are variably absorbed in the upper GI tract, they can have an osmotic effect where they basically pull water in and can increase symptoms related to having sort of more water in the gut, essentially. So, you know, diarrhea, loose stool, and then transiting down to the, to the lower bowel where they're fermented and then can contribute to other symptoms such as bloating, wind, even, you know, abdominal pain from the amount of bloating. But I would say it's not straightforward that everyone will get symptoms from FODMAPs. Obviously not, or we would have learned about this a long time ago. But it's the whole picture of the athlete that can contribute to whether or not they have increased symptoms with intake of some of these FODMAPs or certain FODMAPs. And that's where that piece comes into play, where there's sort of that art of looking at the clinical picture. But if I was looking at just the clinical picture and just maybe my dietetic training straight out of school, I would have been like one, two, three, test celiac, not celiac non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And we know a little bit more about diagnosing that now. And I would have maybe come back to the athlete and been like, nope, there's no reason why you should remove gluten. The end. 
but now, you know, years of practice and years of working with different athletes and learning so much more about the individual physiology of athletes, I will rarely have a solution for an athlete right away. You know, it takes a lot of learning, a lot of learning about an individual athlete to determine whether or not a certain dietary strategy is worth testing out. And that's where, you know, we were really open-minded about the gluten piece. We, we look at athletes, gastrointestinal symptoms, the stress of exercise on your or, splanchnic organs. So the organ, you know, your stomach, your GI system, et cetera, those are called your splanchnic organs. The stress of exercise on those organs, it's a whole nother physiological challenge that we have to navigate. And when I look at, you know, what happens during exercise, blood is shunted away from your digestive organs to your working muscles. And what happens when we, when blood does not go to your stomach and your intestines is you're not getting the oxygen, you're not getting the nutrients. And we know that with that sort of change, which is called splanchnic hyperperfusion, you get little breaks in your intestinal barrier. So the intestinal barrier is not as resilient to food compounds, to bacteria, et cetera. So there could be a whole other picture that's going on with athletes, particularly endurance athletes, that may make them more susceptible to gluten or other, you know, sort of what we would consider more, you know, allergenic or, you know, could some people use the term inflammatory foods. I try to be careful with that, that term, but, you know, we have a whole nother picture here that's outside of our typical clinical pathway. So that sort of opened up our, our question initially was the unique physiology of athletes, particularly endurance athletes. It's fascinating for several reasons. One of which I guess is the more you delve into this and the more you realize just how complicated this actually is. I mean, it's, you know, if you think back to day one of when you started learning about nutrition and, you know, this is whether you're a dietitian or even a personal trainer and you've, you've just done sort of a relatively entry-level course, you still spend quite some time learning about all the different sections of the digestive system. And you learn about things like, you know, your digestion starts when you look, see, or smell food. And there's a complex process that goes on that enables your body to prepare for the receipt of the food and you've got to chew it and grind it and mix it with saliva and then diddle it in that goes through this entire factory there's mechanisms to move it through and of course nowadays we're now learning about you know the whole importance about the environment itself the you mentioned the barrier the intestinal barrier which we'll come back to in a minute and of course, the microbiome and the relevance of the microbiota and blah, 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 blah. And of course, we don't have yet sort of a, like when we drive our car, you know, a, a little display that has little flashing red lights that shows you, oh, you've run out of oil, you've run out of petrol. No, we just get one very basic prehistoric symptom. Of, <laughs> oh, or you make some noise and people would rather they weren't sitting behind you at the time sort of situation. <laughs> and it's difficult to diagnose. But of course, we live in a very reductionist society where it's just simple. And to coin a term that you'll hear in a lot of news about a certain conflict is, is sort of this false flag concept. You think that it's it's one thing that's happening and I actually no, it's a completely different one. And And I guess that's what's really interesting about this because certain foods like you say gluten and i think it's worth you actually describing where do we even find these foods gluten fodmaps because we do make quite simplistic choices particularly to refer back to what i said we eat calories we eat carbohydrates and so oh, i'm carving up i'm going to carb up it is true we can make different choices but in my experience there is a very small number of foods that people usually will default to particularly 
like team sport athletes and so on, certain kinds of very individual athletes who are very health-focused might have an incredibly varied, broad selection of foods in their diet. But, you know, a lot of athletes are quite simple about the foods that they will choose, and there'll be a very small number of things that are their default carbs, their default proteins. And this is what ends up in that factory that we've just described, and problems occur with the symptoms that we've discussed. But maybe you could just take us back to this concept of food and what's actually going in and what those terms like gluten and FODMAPs are as it relates to the real world foods that we might actually find presented on that plate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when I first started looking at FODMAPs and I remember having a conversation with Monash University. So Monash is is basically the hub of sort of creation of the FODMAP diet, but also irritable bowel syndrome research and functional gastrointestinal disorders so when we started sort of developing this gluten question and talking to the Monash group, like, we want to learn more about this. This is what we think is going on physiologically with endurance athletes. What do you think? What are we missing? And that's, I think, the great thing about having, you know, international networks is you can reach out to experts in different spaces. You don't have to be an expert in every single aspect of everything. It's impossible, especially working in nutrition. I think with nutrition now, with working in the performance space, you have to have a decent level of knowledge and strength and conditioning athletic therapy, psychology. And I, I honestly believe nutritionists have the hardest job within a sports science team. But anyways, that's a discussion for another day. You know, we're talking to Monash and they're like, oh, well, you know what? Why are you looking only at gluten? You, you've missed a whole, the whole link between, you know, gluten and FODMAPs. And when I started looking at FODMAPs, I was completely overwhelmed. I was, you know, thinking from an athlete perspective, if I have to restrict this many foods, it, you know, it's impossible. So when you look at FODMAPs, it's not like you can say, you know, all brown foods contain FODMAPs or are high FODMAP foods. FODMAPs find themselves across our whole food system. So I would say probably fructans are the most common trigger for people who are sensitive. And fructans, that's where it sort of gets a little bit muddy with gluten because a lot of gluten-containing foods, so your wheat-containing foods, breads, cereals, soy sauce may have actually gluten in it, are also subsequently high in fructans. So fructans occur in you know wheat, rye, barley. So the first link that we looked at was that connection between gluten-containing foods also being very high in fructans. So that's the first sort of link between the gluten FODMAP story. But when we look at which foods are high in FODMAPs, I honestly, most if anyone's like, oh, I need to look into this and I want to find a really good resource, use the Monash app. They have a great app that is a traffic light system, very easy to use, and also has the FODMAP content tested via the Monash laboratory. So if you Go online and you're like, what foods are high FODMAP? You know, you'll find a table that says your list of fructin, high fructin foods. So as I mentioned, wheat, rye, barley, onions, garlic, and then you'll have a list that says your oligosaccharides. And those are your longer sugar groups. And your oligosaccharides would be things like beans and legumes. And then you have your lactose as well. So your dairy, high dairy foods. And as you continue sort of down the FODMAP chart, you'll quickly realize that FODMAPs can be in all sorts of different foods. It is hard to navigate. You know, is this a high FODMAP food? Is this a low FODMAP food? And it also depends on the amount of that food that you eat as well. It's something that I'm always a little bit sort of wary around jumping on right away. It's sort of a tool I use later on down the path of working with an athlete. 
So the first piece to look at is going through the FODMAP chain of you know, fructans, oligosaccharides, lactose is probably one of the higher or more common FODMAPs within our food system. Basically kind of looking at the FODMAP picture, we want to figure out essentially which high FODMAP foods may be the culprit in an athlete's diet. So with looking at the high FODMAP and low FODMAP alternatives, I think it's important for a practitioner to first just look at an athlete's intake. It may just be one specific food that is easy to identify right away that could be the culprit or the amount of that food that they're eating. And it's not necessary to go on a strict low FODMAP diet right away. So I think that's really important for athletes to navigate because I, what I've experienced now is, and I was kind of worried about this when we started the, the research and publishing a few papers, I was like, I really am, you know, worried about athletes just jumping on this and being like, oh, I have GI symptoms, spot, low FODMAP is going to work. I'm going to go on a low FODMAP diet. It's a fairly restrictive diet. And in most cases, it's just a couple of key foods in athletes that are the triggers. And as you mentioned, athletes are creatures of habit. They tend to eat a lot of the same foods and it could be just something that they're eating a lot of. So they just need to add a little bit more variety and bring down the amount of that high FODMAP food. For example, it could be legumes or beans, and they like to eat a lot of beans if they're following a plant-based diet. So I think it's really important to first investigate that particular athlete's nutrition habits before jumping on the low FODMAP, full strict low FODMAP elimination piece. You do need to be very much a bigger picture thinker, don't you? You need to understand this stuff to the extent that uh, if you really don't know a lot about this, please refer to somebody who does, because this is complicated for many reasons, but it is one that I think is worth us briefly talking about, just so people don't go a little bit buckwild with the whole, right, I'm going to tell everyone to stop eating FODMAPs and play with it. It is important to recognize the strengths and limitations of your own knowledge and where that might take your scope of practice. I think we all need to know about this stuff because, you know, if you're not a dietitian or you're not trained, for example, you haven't done the Monash FODMAP course, which I'm aware is there and is very good. You need to at least recognize the potential for this to be a problem. And then you'll know that will trigger your need to potentially refer. But either which way, it's interesting to me because you have a problem Let's say it's bloating, gas, wind, whatever. It doesn't matter how you look at it. That's not ideal for you to be focused on your critical event, your own quality of life, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's, there's so many reasons to get rid of these problems. But ultimately, cutting out food groups is, is a major problem. I mean, from my understanding, you're potentially missing out on energy. That could be an issue thinking reds, obviously, and the problems that that can have. We've covered that on previous podcasts, but also you're missing out on certain nutrients, which I'd like to get into in a minute with you. But one area, because I've contributed myself to research on on the microbiome and, and microbiota is the cutting out of foods like high fiber foods and starches and so on is food for the bacteria that reside in our gut. And yes, the short-term result might be you don't feed them and provide them with a a reason to cause the fermentation, but the long-term consequence can also be you then provide a scenario where they can't persist and flourish. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it, Dana? What are your thoughts about that, both as a researcher, but also as a dietitian in the real world? We're working with athletes, and you mentioned REDS. 
that's something I also just, you know, looking when you're speaking with an athlete and just kind of trying to read the athlete, they have GI symptoms and then they're, you know, looking at low FODMAP diets, but they're plant-based and you sort of see that compounding restriction. And if you look, as I mentioned, a low FODMAP diet can be super restrictive if you haven't replaced the high FODMAP foods appropriately. So we always sort of talk about trying to replace the high FODMAP food rather than eliminate it when you get to that point and sort of navigating the foods that are triggers. And then absolutely high FODMAP foods are prebiotics. They're, they're the food that fuels your gut microbiota. And we're learning so much about athlete, well, just overall, not just athletes, but people, the importance of your gut microbiota population density and how that links to everything from psychological well-being to how you metabolize lactate. I definitely like sort of reflecting on the FODMAP piece and through this, through this journey of the PhD work, it really came back to a lot about gut health. And I still, you know, revisit that with athletes when I'm starting, I don't always just go with, you know, what they're talking about or what they're, you know, they think their key problem is, is I always pull in the gut health piece because I just really feel like it folds into so many aspects of athletic performance. And I just want to make sure we don't overlook it. But then also there's that flip side of trying not to make too big of an issue out of something that is not. But um, we do know that a strict low FODMAP diet can reduce population of certain gut microbes. And bifidobacterium is, is namely the one that's been studied probably the most. And then also the opposite of that, there have been, I think, three studies that I usually refer to that have looked at a supplementation of bifidobacteria, which has increased population in the gut and sort of reduce the associated dysbiosis. I try not to throw around a whole bunch of long, fancy words, because I think when you're talking to athletes, it's important to, you know, not baffle them with all these fancy words, but bring it back to common language. So to summarize that there are, there is food in the high FODMAP foods that feeds our gut to be healthier. Those are also fermented. That's, that's how that whole picture works. But if we cut those out, there could be also detrimental effects to gut health. So it's finding that balance. And if you know, if you are, you have found a, a low FODMAP diet and a pretty strict one does work for you, it's definitely important to still look at lower FODMAP alternatives to help still have that prebiotic stimulus. And this is really important stuff. Various things I want to dig into, some more technical aspects, which I know I want to talk about and I know listeners will want to get into, but th this is just practical stuff that's so important and often gets missed when we get obsessed with the science around these things. And it is, like I say, it's it's that gap between what we're seeing in the lab, what we're collecting for our research, but the real issues that present themselves. For example, this can be a bit of a moving target, a bit of a, an evolving situation where it's very tempting to go, I've got a problem, I'm going to take this pill to get rid of the pain. Or Every time I eat bread or, or drink milk, I get the symptom. Therefore, I'm just never going to eat that again. What are your perspectives on that? We have started to learn about training the gut and various other things. Is that something that's relevant here? Absolutely. And with a new idea, and I wouldn't, FODMAPS is newer on the toolbox with dealing with GI issues and athletes. I still start with the basics of, you know, timing, fat content, carbohydrate types, and start with the basics and the, the FODMAP piece, you know, folds in later. I think, you know, we have the tendency to want to bring the, you know, the newest and best idea, although you probably haven't tried this, let's look at this. And it's still years, you know, after years of practicing 
still the FODMAP piece is something I pull in later on down sort of the investigation piece, even though, you know, you, you want to jump on it. Working with cycling too, it's, it's an area where it's extreme physiological stress and working with females and males in that space has taught me so much and listening to athletes and their experiences with different strategies to deal with GI issues has equally taught me as much. So there's also that piece of really bringing in, you know, what some of your athletes are doing in the field into your toolbox. And my key message there is it's a tool that overall, I'd say, based on my experience, it has benefit, but I wouldn't jump to it right away. I would still go through and check off that lower hanging fruit. Yeah. Now, it's an interesting point you you make there. You made me think about just from my own practice over the years the different types of athletes that I've worked with, which has been mainly football, sorry, soccer for those that require that translation, Um, (laughs) but football, soccer, rugby, and some combat sports is where I've done a lot of my work, but, and some military stuff. But the, I have briefly delved into elite cycling. And the thing about that population of, of athletes is those athletes know so much more about nutrition to the extent that they are super aware of how many calories are in different foods and so on and so forth, which I found quite shocking. And maybe that was just my own experience, but it does lead you down this path of needing to be extremely careful, as you say, with the terminology that we use, because they get left with this, this idea that a certain food's good or bad. And that just isn't the case. It it might not be good right now, but you've just got to be careful, haven't you? What, What are your thoughts about that? Given that you, you are so, so deeply involved in the science side of it but on the other hand you're so actively involved in the communication of that to to people first trying to learn about about your athletes what their priorities are and i think you might have an athlete that goes off on a tangent of you know you know we'll use low fodmap as an example we're talking about fodmaps of like yeah no absolutely low fodmap is strict low fodmap diet during you know these blocks in the season and we don't start going well you know there might be these downsides and, you know, start talking about those and they're very well done, but they're like, no, this is, this has worked for me. I'm going to do it. And I think trying to bring it back to performance, how is this going to impact performance and bringing the discussion back to around what, you know, parameters of performance is this going to impact? And when we start weighing those pros and cons, you're able to get an athlete, I think more on board when you bring it back to their, what's important, what's most important. It's usually performance. You know, sometimes you'll you'll get an athlete that has an idea really strongly embedded in the, the way that they operate. And when you know that that idea is possibly detrimental, then I think it's worth investing the time and getting to know the athlete, getting to know, you know, what makes them tick and trying to use those strategies to help influence, you know, a more balanced approach. But, you know, there are some times when what an athlete is doing, the risk is not really a big deal. You're like, yeah, okay, maybe it's not really that evidence-based, but the time and investment and possibly the relationship that is going to be compromised by trying to, you know, set that record straight is not worth it. And so sometimes, you know, we let, we just let things go. An athlete's doing something that, you know, you would consider a bit, a bit wacky, not really evidence-based, but you're like, it works for them. I'm not going to really intervene because the downside, there's no downside to it. And sometimes you know, have that athletes doing really wacky stuff. And, you know, two years later, we find out that actually there's a really good scientific reason for that. I take a backseat for a while in a lot of situations and just try to learn more about the athlete before we decide whether or not 
where they're going with a nutrition strategy is a good idea. Well, also, you know, people, they have their beliefs for one reason Mm -hmm. or other, and no pun intended, but some people have a gut feeling that what they're doing is the right thing. And they're actually so attached to it that if you ask them not to do something, it really... It can really yep. cause them a lot of a lot of stress and anxiety. And actually, you referenced this a bit in in one of the papers I'm going to link to in the show notes about your exit gluten free and enter low FODMAPs, a novel dietary strategy to reduce gastrointestinal symptoms in in athletes. Which love that paper for a variety of reasons, mainly because of the applicability to real world practice. But we feel that we have all this science out there about gluten this and there are these you know allergy tests and intolerance tests and so on and 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 i will put my hands up many years ago now many many years ago i was well into that i totally fell for the you know (laughs) those testing oh good i'm pleased i'm not the only one i used to be quite sort of shy about admitting i used to do these things but i didn't know any better i was naive and the more i've learned about it you know the more it makes sense to me that actually that is just silly really you know it's not cut and dry there is bits of science there and and so on but let's just quickly go down this path a bit because people are aware they have a problem because they've got the gastrointestinal symptoms they don't have access to a lab they are tempted to either go down these various tests that you primarily find through the more alternative members of the nutrition community which i'm not going to spend time on other than there isn't a whole lot of evidence there to support that stuff but which i wish i knew in the, in the old days but anyway um but the, <laughs> but the fact is is the other alternative is is i'm just not going to eat that food as i've just talked about there are pros and cons to that whole thing but from the perspective of the actual evidence since we keep talking about evidence-based and the practical reality of well if they really want to do it is it really such a problem how does this actually impact athlete health and performance and i guess performance being the greater focus at this point in the conversation like you know is there a problem or is there not if you have the time and capacity to learn about the history of that athlete and i'll sometimes take a piece of paper when i'm talking to an athlete especially like you know a more experienced professional athlete that's you know been racing for 10 years 20 years and i'll draw a timeline and i'll map out their career timeline but then they'll you know talk about oh i started having this or i had this injury I got sick here, or I went and raced over in, um, let's say, South America, and I got sick here. And I'll try to map out that piece to try to get a picture of how these GI issues have developed. Ricardo Costa published a really good review in 2017 that looked at exercise-associated gastrointestinal syndrome, tried to, you know, kind of define this syndrome. But the one key takeaway from that paper was that the authors proposed that Endurance athletes that have spent a chunk of their life racing, training at high intensities, and have continually put this stress on their gut. So their gut is constantly in a state of various levels of injury. It takes four to five days for you know epithelial cells to kind of heal or turn over. So, you know, if you look at that period of time and how many training sessions you have at a certain intensity, your gut is always going to be a little bit not perfect, essentially, not super, super exactly this perfect health space. You know, there is an adaptation piece, you know, athletes do adapt to that reduced blood flow. And there are adaptations, but one of the proposed sort of outcomes of having a life of endurance exercise and high intensity endurance exercise is that possibly 
it could feed into the development of a functional gastrointestinal disorder. So it could be that, you know, you have your, I'll give an example of, you know, professional female cyclist, you know, raced throughout their twenties, raced for, you know, 10, 15 years, still, you know, rides and races, but found, you know, as they got a little bit older, more GI symptoms, just, you know, sensitive to the same food they would have eaten no problem in their twenties. And there's a whole bunch of pieces that fold into that partly is, you know, develop, there's a psychological piece, you know, dealing with more stresses as you get older, you're having to become an adult. I find that stressful still. There's just the cumulative impact of high intensity exercise. There's sort of the additive impact of a life of high intensity exercise and stress of racing and training. So there's a whole bunch of pieces that feed in. And we know that gastrointestinal symptoms are, are very transient. They're hard to replicate. So I really try to like build out a timeline to understand where some key trigger pieces may have come into this athlete's development of this issue. So that's usually, you know, where I start and then determining whether or not this is the gastrointestinal issue is severe enough to compromise performance. You might have sometimes where an athlete's like, I'm a little bit bloated and no, it's not that bad. It doesn't really, I don't really think about it in racing. And then you might be like, you know, we're spending a lot of time on this and it's not that big of a deal on this, on the grand scheme of things. Let's figure out where, where we can really impact performance or on the flip side, you might have an athlete that um, I worked with a triathlete who top 10 in the world, and she was having to stop during runs and, you know, was putting her in first place to 10th place. Still pretty good, but you know, she could have won these races. And that's when, you know, that gastrointestinal health and the foods that you're eating, et cetera, and your strategies really fold into an exact measure on performance. So I think trying to learn about that athlete, learning about the timeline and when these symptoms are occurring, because it could be something that's completely unrelated to food. It could be related to sleep, could be related to air travel, could be related to heat. So trying not to jump right away on, I have the nutrition solution, learning about that athlete, mapping out, you know, I, that's just a tool I use is kind of map out a timeline. But I've definitely had cases where there's been a specific point in time where an athlete has gotten some sort of parasite from racing abroad and their gut has never been the same. But they also may have never taken Especially, the uh, open water it. swimming athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've definitely come yep. across that. It is a thing for sure. Yeah. That's a, that, that's a fantastic example for sure. Mm. And then I guess, yeah, determining whether, you know, how much time and energy you want to invest, if it's directly impacting performance and absolutely invest the time. I'll use gastrointestinal symptom scales too, to really try to gauge how severe those symptoms are. Cause What's severe for one athlete may not be that severe for another, and it doesn't affect their performance or their quality of life. So I think first determining, you know, how this, whatever gastrointestinal issue they're dealing with is impacting performance and quality of life, and then working from there. And that's what makes this so interesting because it is, well, it's obviously complicated, but it's seemingly simplistic from the perspective of, oh, I've got bloating, I'm just going to stop eating something. And of course, yeah. When particularly when we're talking about athletes, some of those foods that they stop eating are particularly important from a fueling, refueling perspective. It's a difficult area, but it's not the only area that they're manipulating their diet mm-hmm. to have a certain outcome. And that can include things like inflammation, of course. Now, inflammation, we talk about bloating, gas, whatever, but you know, it might actually be the the fermentation or the putrefaction that's causing the bloating it isn't, you know, people think that that's an inflammatory response. Yes, it might, mm-hmm. it might cause a certain amount of stress to those cells and tissues and result in a form of inflammation. But specifically, in more recent years, people are concerned with 
the role that inflammation can have, particularly the link to the immune system and, and so on. What did you find in your research, particularly when that's it's really pinned to gluten? You know, you hear that all the time. Oh, I'm not going to, you know, let's go on a gluten-free diet because it's going to reduce your uh, your overall stress load, particularly from an inflammatory perspective. What, what's the reality from an evidence perspective? When you look at any studies that have investigated what happens to the epithelial barrier during exercise, you know, you get breaks in the epithelial barrier with reduced nutrients, oxygen, et cetera. And the stuff, essentially, the bacteria, peptides, et cetera, that are you know supposed to stay inside that tube can translocate across. And your gut is basically your body's largest immune barrier. And, you know, when you get translocation of bacteria and other, other compounds, across that gut membrane, that then can contribute to a cytokine response. So an inflammatory response. And then, you know, that cytokine response can lead to a cascade that then can turn into a whole body inflammatory response, but it is also, you know, not just a certain food. There's also a whole picture contributing to that sort of inflammatory cascade what the thinking might've been with gluten and athletes was, okay, we're getting these breaks in the epithelial barrier, increasing intestinal permeability. So, you know, those gluten peptides, the translocation of those gluten peptides across that barrier where they wouldn't normally get across the barrier in, in the higher amounts, essentially may stimulate a greater inflammatory response. So, whereas, you know, with um, somebody who's not exercising to the point where their gut barrier is being compromised, gluten would, you know, pass through no problem. But somebody who is having that, those changes in gut permeability, there may be more translocation of things like gluten peptides across the barrier, causing inflammation or contributing to an inflammatory response. So we did measure cytokines. We did not find a difference between the gluten-free and gluten-containing diet before, during, and after exercise. So, so far in what I've seen, there's with cytokine profiles, we have, we didn't see a difference. Doesn't mean it's not there. It's just the study that we ran. We didn't pick it up. But it's interesting because you still walk down an aisle in a supermarket and you will see a whole section dedicated to low gluten Mm -hmm. or gluten-free foods. And and it still persists and partly because it's easier to latch onto that. I can't imagine having a FODMAP aisle in the supermarket. You know, that's gonna that's oh, gonna be complicated. We well, do, maybe we is. do. Australia there is, yep. Really? Um, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those Aussies. Those Aussies, they're ahead they're of us. They're ahead of us yeah. all the time. Yeah, I wouldn't say I've seen it in North America yet at all or Europe. You definitely still have to search. But we do have a FODI, which is a company that is an online company that's become pretty big in North America for just helping people find low FODMAP alternatives. Amazing. But I think too, you know, with the gluten peas, I think it still persists partly because we've learned a lot more about celiac disease. So, you know, people are better able to get diagnosed still, you know, 1% of the population is still, I wouldn't say enough to warrant a whole aisle or a chunk of an aisle, but we have learned a lot more about non-celiac gluten or non-celiac wheat sensitivity and our ability to sort of diagnose that has improved. So I think, you know, there is a a larger population that, you know, has a condition called non-celiac wheat sensitivity and have been able to better diagnose that. But then there's also a huge population that may be responding to things like fructans or FODMAPs and mistakenly attributing that to gluten. Yeah. I've covered this with numerous guests Mm -hmm. in the past, including Dr. 
Costa, of course, has come on and various members of the team like Dr. Alan McCubbin, although we were talking mainly about hydration strategies and heat acclimation and so on. But uh, that's another area that I know he's an expert on. But it's that fascinating. It's that interesting. But nothing. There's two topics that just really get people's juices going in uh, the nutrition arena. And one, of course, and I joke about this, is protein. People love protein. They love to talk about protein. It is by far. I mean... I kid you not, all of the podcasts I do, when it's got protein in the title, it's massive downloads. It's just <laughs> crazy. But the other one, of course, is is this whole body composition thing. And absolutely, you know, if you're an elite athlete, not in all sports, but in many of them, having a favorable body composition that enables you to be functional, usually lean with sufficient, you know, muscle mass, et cetera, et cetera does require the manipulation of energy and certain macronutrients in particular. And we've covered that in so many podcasts. But you do hear people going on about going on a sort of a gluten-free type diet as a means to achieve body composition, let alone weight loss. Well, I mean, again, the evidence there, what's your <laughs> thoughts on that? <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it's like any diet. Asker has a couple of good infographics on this that I've used. But, you know, when you go on any diet, there are all these other subsequent dietary changes that happen. We captured that in the first survey-based paper that we did was trying to learn about the other dietary changes. And, you know, the other dietary changes are, you know, eating more balanced diet, eating more fruits and vegetables, focusing on higher quality protein. And all of those changes are probably what leads to the favorable body composition changes. It's not just the removal of gluten itself. There is the odd case, but maybe that is the exact reason. But it's probably more, you know, just the being non-aware of having a pastry at the coffee time or, you know, having a few slices of pizza. And it's more just the changing the other dietary patterns around gluten-containing foods and not gluten itself that's triggering weight loss or body composition changes. Yeah. Well, look, you know, I think the mistaken identity thing is it's a myth that's perpetuated by various people, various organizations and so oh, on. Absolutely. So it is understandable why people still feel that gluten is the enemy sort of thing. But of course, the reality that it's one percent, isn't it, of people that actually really, truly have a problem there. The rest of them, it's a situation where there's an awful lot they can do about it. But like we mentioned you're going to need some help, you know, which is why we're talking about it from your research and what the science in general, what the evidence tells us. But of course, that has to be skillfully worked with by a practitioner to individualize it to that person's unique needs. Just walk us through that as a practitioner specifically. You know, you've got a you've got an athlete, they present themselves to you with gastrointestinal symptoms. You know, and I'm sure there's different ways of approaching this, but what's your sort of normal field-based approach to this to bring this to sort of a real world scenario for us, please? Yeah, it's hard to have the normal because it's different with every sport and every athlete. And I work kind of between polar sports, between NBA basketball and world tour cycling. First is started working with the women's world tour team this year. And I had one of the athletes who's, you know, one of the characters on the team. She's got a lot to say. She's a really interesting woman. She sat down with me. She's like, 
yeah, I like heard you were coming. Like I just started working with them. So it's new. She's like, yeah, I looked you up and I, you know, I looked up your Instagram and stuff. I was like, you'd be disappointed with social media. You saw pictures of my son, really. She's like, yeah. Then I saw you were, you did some gluten and FODMAP work. And I was like, oh no, we're getting this nutritionist. She's going to tell us to get rid of gluten and everything. And she was like, I was so relieved to see that you were, you had like a really evidence-based approach and she had been through med school. So she had a very, you know, scientific view of how she approaches her nutrition, her training, et cetera. It was funny that you mentioned that of like, you might automatically get classified into this stream of nutrition practitioners that is completely opposite of the way you practice. With that said, I've become a lot more open-minded through, you know, working with different athletes in different scenarios where, you know, previously I would have been like IgG, I'm not even gonna look at that. That's complete crap. Where now is I'll look at it and talk to the athlete about if they actually experience any symptoms. Cause I get a lot of athletes doing IgG stuff now where I won't just shut it down right away, but I'll, I'll entertain the idea. And you, once in a while, you pull something valuable out of it. But usually I'll start with trying to understand first, when, when are these symptoms occurring? If they're occurring just in races, let's look at that scenario. If they're occurring regularly every day in training, then that's a whole different picture and approach. So in a race specific scenario, then I would look at all the factors that feed into gastrointestinal symptoms. That's everything from hormone changes related to, you know, race nerves. I'll look at, you know, menstrual cycle. We'll look at temperature. We'll look at travel. We'll look at sleep and we'll look at nutrition and their nutrition strategies and foods. And then prioritize, you know, where do we think the biggest culprits are? If it's hydration and heat, let's start focusing on that. It has nothing to do with eliminating FODMAPs yet. That might not even enter the picture. So start trying to kind of create the whole picture of all the pieces that feed into GI health. And then if I have, you know, an athlete who's, you know, just experiencing symptoms daily, you know, various severities, but it's always kind of there, you know, always a worry, always a stress. And it is, you know, does compromise their quality of life. Athletes that have this constant low grade, various grade GI symptoms, their eating gets really restricted. They tend to stay with their safe foods and whether that's linked to restrictive eating behaviors, or just something that's inadvertently developed from, you know, sort of staying with their safe foods. It's usually a little bit of both in some of the worlds I work in. I'll try to get a history of how this is developed, what foods they think are triggers, symptom severity, how it's compromising their, you know, their overall daily life. And usually with an athlete like that, they've done a lot of investigation and experimentation themselves. So, you know, it's talking through that and trying to create, as I said, a timeline or a flow chart of, okay, this this was tried. This is how it was tested out. You know, let's say eating earlier before training results were, you know, this is what the athlete described and trying to work through really systematically. I think it's easy to try to get all these ideas together that like this could work and this could work. Let's do it all. And then you don't know what's working, what's not. So I try to figure out what the athlete has tried before. If they tried something a long time ago and they're like, no, it didn't work. We might revisit it. A lot of diets, they think they did it, but they didn't do it. Basically working systematically. And again, starting with the low hanging fruit of the basics of you know, hydration, how early they're eating before training, protein intake, fat intake, what they're eating during training. And then I also think it's important to, you know, look at just the sort of behaviors of that athlete. And that, you know, when you, when I say that you kind of automatically pop into that super type A sort of stressed out athlete. And we know that stress and sort of is linked to your gut brain axis is there's always a connection there that I try not to forget about. I also often will end up being like, Hey, do you do any like meditation or anything? And trying to also bring that piece in. And I don't give meditation or psychology advice. That's way out of my scope of practice, 
but it's important to understand if an athlete is also using that tool. And there are a couple studies, again, out of Monash, looking at yoga and irritable bowel syndrome symptoms and showing that yoga did help reduce symptoms. So with an athlete that has, you know, kind of chronic GI issues, creating the whole picture and then using a very systematic approach to the tools that we test and trial. And I think it's important to GI symptoms can be so ambiguous. Like, yeah, they were good. They were bad. Have some sort of scale. And the Likert scale is a scale that's validated for GI symptoms. So I usually will use a Likert scale because I think it's important to try to have a measure that you can use in practice. Athletes will describe things, but you're like, oh, well, to me, that means something different than it does to you. So you kind of try to create their baseline and work off of that. And the Monash app has a Likert scale right on it. So sometimes we'll use that as a quick little athletes like apps a lot. They're still new to me. I still struggle with like putting new apps on my phone, but they do have a purpose. That's for sure. You know, you've done an awesome job. My mission here was to look at this topic, gluten-free diets, FODMAPs, through the lens of a researcher, practitioner, unpack the evidence, but keep it real, keep it practice, practical. And you've done, an, on all those levels, you've done a, a great job. So I, I'm really grateful for it. You know, we've been talking for over an hour and you spent a whole PhD just on a part of this. So, you know, I want people not to just listen to the podcast. I always recommend people read the various resources that I pin to the show notes. So I will link to your various papers on this topic. I'll link to the Monash app. Uh, I'm also going to link to other podcasts like Dr. Costa and the many others that I've gotten into on on this topic, because it all builds a body of knowledge. We're nowhere near that there, really. I mean, there's still so much more to learn, but I think, you know, you just need to understand what you know and what you don't know and just be careful, right? You know, we're still messing with, with what people like. It impacts their quality of life. And I really like the fact that you just mentioned this, you know, an important piece, which is People get stressed, they get anxious, particularly athletes, and that can be a trigger in itself. So we just need to be mindful that we don't always know exactly what's going on. Well, far from it, clearly. But you've helped fill a lot of gaps there, Dana, so thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me on. And I think one thing that is important to mention too, and I just, I'll get reamed out if I don't mention this from somebody, um, is just to make sure we don't overlook you know, a clinical condition. And that's where you know gathering the athlete history is important. And I've had many occasions where we've been able to identify something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth through, you know, digging a little bit deeper, just making sure that if you're out of your scope of practice and you need to look into more of a clinical pathway to make sure that you tap into your resources that can help you with that as well. Yeah. And well, you know, look, scope of practice is an important one to end with because I talk about this a lot with various guests. It is sometimes difficult to know what your scope of practice is because there's a lot of gray areas particularly in the nutrition sphere where you've got sports nutritionists dietitians public health nutritionists then there's the others you know nutritional therapists and blah 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 i mean nutrition coaches and and so on but i think at the end of the day what we're trying to do is is give people knowledge give people tools with which to critically appraise it's sort of sad to mention Kev Tipton at this point because, of course, he passed mm-hmm. away so recently yeah. and only a couple of podcasts ago we did our last episode. But, you know, in honour of him, you know, he would always go on about being sceptical but open-minded. And yeah. I think that's what we're trying to do here. you just got to sit there and think about this stuff and just refer. This is an area that could be covering up something really quite nasty in terms of a health condition. So 
just think about that stuff. But anyway, we've done all that we can in the realms of this conversation, <laughs> Dana, and we'll leave it there. And I'm going to put links to your website and so on. Of course, Science and Sport, who you work with and so on. So anyway, for me, I got a lot out of it, Dana. So just for purely selfish reasons, I'm very grateful. But uh, the great thing is, is we're sharing this conversation with everyone else as well. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. It's been, yeah, it's an honor. My pleasure too. You take care. Thank you so much. Thank you.